The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10 through 17. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, it prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep. And then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jack. So in the movie uh, Amadeus, you may have seen it, uh, there are two composers that are featured, and they're contemporaries of one another. There is, on the one hand, Salieri, and uh, Salieri is a devout Catholic, Uh, He works tirelessly at his craft, making music, composing scores and such, and he never seems to get his big break. And uh, he goes in, he he essentially goes unnoticed as a musician and as a composer, and uh, essentially he is obscure. And then his contemporary composer is uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who is pictured as a drunk, as a womanizer, as a man of bad character, as a man whose music, which is filled with masterpieces, comes to him without effort, oftentimes under the influence of alcohol and with no sleep, and he becomes lauded, famous all over the world. And there's a point in the film where Salieri has an existential crisis about the unfairness of it all, and he essentially takes God to task, and he asks God, why would you choose somebody like Mozart instead of somebody like me to have such a gift? And then he says to God, these words. From now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give to me only the ability to recognize that incarnation. You are unjust, unfair, unkind. And then Salieri renounces God and self-implodes. Salieri is by no means the first person to question God in this way. 
There are actually prayers that God has given us in the Bible, specifically in the Psalms, but not exclusively in the Psalms, such as the 73rd Psalm where Asaph, a very spiritual man, prays these words, I envy the arrogant when I see the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And then here in our our text in front of us this morning from Ecclesiastes 8, all is vanity, all is vapor, because it seems like the worst people get what the righteous deserve, and the best people get what the wicked deserve. And here we are on Palm Sunday. Holy Week that, that begins with sanity. In comes Jesus, and the crowds cry out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save. You know, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men. But as the week goes by, we start to hear the rumblings of the crowd, and then the shouts of the crowd, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Give us Barabbas, spare the life of Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the rebel, the man of ill repute, the Mozart type, and crucify the devout maker of music, Jesus. And then in the coming years, the disciples of Jesus start dropping like flies as each of them is executed, not for being unfaithful, but for being faithful. And then the Roman Caesars who take their lives mostly in very vicious, cruel, parading sorts of ways seem to prosper all the more. And 11 of the 12 disciples end up dying as martyrs. Number 12 dies in exile in prison on a remote island. And then fast forward to today, and and you still see this dynamic, that the best people seem to get what the wicked deserve, and the worst people seem to get what the righteous deserve. It just takes one or two news cycles to be reminded of this, that, that power and prosperity goes typically to people who lie, people who cheat, people who oppress, people who murder, and suffering goes to the faithful, to those who are hardworking, to those who are kind. In comes Jesus. There's great symbolism to this, you know, because when kings and emperors came into a town or a village, they came on a horse, a symbol of power, a symbol of aggression, a symbol of war, a symbol of who is large and in charge. And then you have Jesus coming in on a donkey. There's so much irony there because the donkey represents humility It represents peace. It represents a rider who believes he has nothing to prove. And in choosing not to act like a king with all the bravado as he rode in to town, that's actually what established Jesus as the king on Palm Sunday, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And 
And yet the question still remains, and especially by virtue of what would happen to him the Friday after that, when he was crucified, what are we to do with the reality in which we're living right now, which was Salieri's reality, which is everyone's reality, that the wicked seem to get off scot-free and the righteous seem to suffer? There's two thoughts, two answers to that question according to our text. The first is that there will be a reckoning, and the second is that there will be relief. And so, uh, we'll start with the answer that there will be a reckoning. In other words, when, when there is injustice, when unfairness seems to rule the day and to dominate our lives and our realities, the truth of the matter is that things are not always as they seem. We, in our limited perspective, feel like there's never going to be any end to injustice, oppression, things that are not fair, abuse, and so on. But what the writer here, as well as the psalmists and Jesus and the Gospels and the epistles all assure us is that all injustice, all wrongfulness has an expiration date. Evil will be called to account. And this is something that Christians especially can rejoice over. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. He's seeing into the future. I saw the wicked buried. There's a hint of rejoicing in this. Could it be? You know, verse 13, he goes on, it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Nearly 10% of the Psalms, there's 150 of them, they're right in the middle of the Bible if you want to explore them. Nearly 10% of them are what we call imprecatory Psalms. To imprecate is to pray against instead of praying for. To imprecate is to call down judgment and calamity and cursing on the enemies of God. The fifth Psalm is an example. God, you hate all evildoers, you abhor bloodthirsty men. Make them bear their, their guilt, O Lord. And then the tenth psalm, rise up, Lord, against the oppressors. Break the arm of the wicked. Call them to account. You could explore some others if you want to write these down. There's Psalm 5, 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, 69, and, and, and it keeps going. You can, you can Google it, imprecatory psalms. But The point of the matter is that there is a place in which people inspired by God pray against people, actually pray for the harm of those who are doing harm. And the the, the tender side of us might say, well, God's not really like that, is He? How could God possibly be like that? Because He's a God of love. And we've said it before. It bears repeating that that to say that God is only a God of tenderness, God is only a God of forgiveness, God is only a God of 
of kindness is, is a luxury that only the privileged and non-oppressed get to enjoy. Your life is pretty sheltered if you think that all God is is love. All love, no judgment. All gentleness, no fierceness. All kindness, no severity. I mean, the Apostle Paul himself, the, the, the champion of the grace and love of God in Romans said, consider the kindness and the severity of God. He's a consuming fire. What do we do with this? You know what to do with this when you become one of the victims, or somebody that's dear to you becomes one of the victims. Your tune changes all of a sudden. This whole idea of God being a completely and all the time non-retaliatory God starts to vaporize, as it should. I mean, because if God is only non-retaliatory, what do we say when we are face-to-face with a Holocaust victim or a victim of slavery or of trafficking, human trafficking, or when we're face-to-face with a Syrian refugee or when we're face-to-face with somebody who's been bullied or somebody who grew up with an abusive father or a borderline mother or somebody from Parkland High School? What do we say? You know, we actually affirm this in the Apostles' Creed. I believe that Jesus Christ descended into hell, and I believe He will come again to judge, to punish, to exercise His wrath on the living and the dead. Do we believe this? And maybe a deeper question would be, do we rejoice in it? And those victims who actually do rejoice in these words, just as we rejoice in the words, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, rejoicing in the judgment of God, praising God not just for His glorious grace but also for His glorious justice, is not an indication that there's something wrong with us. It's an indication there's something right with us. Can I say that? What the Word crucify during Holy Week accomplished is this, the certainty of complete, albeit future, justice. And there are two ways that justice will be satisfied on the account of the wicked out there, the wicked in here, and the wicked inside our own hearts. Either that justice will be accomplished vicariously, where Jesus on the cross takes the complete hit for everything wrong that we and every other oppressor, like the Apostle Paul, for instance, like King David, for instance, have ever done, past, present, or future. Vicarious, an exchange of records, an exchange of verdicts, us for Jesus, Jesus for us, or retributive. That's the part we don't like to talk about. That that those of us who go into eternity preferring to hold on to our pride rather than to surrender to Christ holding on to us, the only one left to pay for all the wrongs that we have been part of, either actively or complicitly, will be us. That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about hell, which is not merely an Old Testament concept. Jesus talked more about hell and judgment than He did about love. 
Why on earth would this second category of retributive justice exist? Why can't the cross apply to every kind of person, whether they go into eternity believing in Christ or not? Why can't God just be so loving that He would let everybody free, go free? Here's the answer that the Bible gives. Some actually prefer to go to hell with their pride than to go to heaven with Jesus. Because going to heaven with Jesus requires us to acknowledge that we are actually part of this group that's identified in the Scriptures as the wicked. There's no one righteous, not even one. It says in Romans and in the Psalms, we're all helpless apart from Christ. But really, people would rather be judged forever than go into glory humbly with Jesus. Yeah. Luke chapter 16, there's actually a parable that Jesus tells about a rich man who is in hell and a man who suffered during his life on earth but humbled himself, trusted Christ, and he's in heaven uh, in Abraham's bosom. And, And there's an exchange that's going on between Abraham in heaven and the rich man in hell. And the rich man says to, to, to Abraham in heaven, send Lazarus down here to give me some water. In other words, I'd rather have a servant in hell than be a servant in heaven. It gives new meaning, doesn't it, to the proverb that says that pride goes before a fall. The Svetlana Aliluva describes the death of a tyrant who murdered millions, who was also her father, Joseph Stalin. This is how she describes her father, Joseph Stalin's last moment. At what seemed like the very last moment of his life, he suddenly opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance insane or perhaps angry and full of fear of death and the unfamiliar faces of the doctors bent over him. The glance swept over everyone in a second. Then something incomprehensible and awesome happened that to this day I can't forget and don't understand. My father suddenly lifted his left hand as though bringing down a curse on us all. The gesture was incomprehensible and full of menace, and no one could say to whom or what it might be directed. The next moment, after a final effort, the spirit wrenched itself free from his flesh. What this seems to describe is a man who prefers riding on a high horse into hell than he does riding on a donkey with Jesus into heaven. It's terrifying. It's tragic. But there will be a reckoning. But there also will be relief. You know, in verse 11, the writer acknowledges that that the judgment of God rarely comes speedily. And he goes on in verse 12, 
and says this, though a sinner or though a wicked person does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God. A long life of injustice. This is what we see in, in this fallen world in which we live, and yet I know what my eyes have yet to see, that it will be well. All will be well with those who fear God. You know, what do we say to Stalin's victims? What do we say for, to anyone who's paying the price of oppression and injustice and abuse in this present world, who watch Barabbas go free as they are led to their own crosses? What if I am Salieri? What if I am the abandoned spouse? What if I am the abused child? What if I am Stalin's victim? What if I am the one who has had her or his life completely changed in a nanosecond by a bullet? The answer to this is, without Jesus, I have no hope to offer you. I I have no hope to offer without Jesus because There is no relief without redemption. There is no Easter without Good Friday in the valley of the shadow of death through which we are made to walk with Jesus. But with Jesus, the encouragement from the writer's own example is to hang on. Again, though sin and evil happens a hundred times and prolongs life, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God, for those who would rather travel on a donkey with Jesus into heaven than travel alone on a high horse into hell. I know it will be well. I know it will be well. Hang your hat on that. He's calling the suffering people of God to a future orientation, not unlike 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I encourage you to look it up and maybe make that part of your reflection uh, during Holy Week leading up to Good Friday. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul talks about how he and his traveling companions, his fellow missionaries, were facing death all day long persecution, prison, beatings. And he says, all of these things that are happening to us are as light and momentary afflictions. They're as light as a feather to me. Wait, wait, beatings, oppression, imprisonment, persecution, facing death all day long is as light as a feather to you? How can that be? He says, it's light as a feather It's light and momentary in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits us. And so, he says, we fix our eyes on things that are unseen because the things that we see are temporary. The wicked getting what the righteous deserve and the righteous getting what the wicked deserve, these are temporary things. But what is unseen the wicked getting their due, either vicariously through Jesus or retributively 
And the righteous, that is those who have been swept up into the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who covers them on their best days and their worst days, these are the things that are unseen but that are also eternal, Paul says. You know, another place in the New Testament is Hebrews chapter 11 where it gives an archive of, of men and women of faith from the Old Testament. And this Hebrews 11 is famously known as the, the Faith Hall of Fame or the chapter in the Bible about faith that, that both defines it and illustrates it. And the way that faith is defined in Hebrews 11 is this, faith is the evidence of things that we hope for and being certain of things that we do not yet see. And all the people listed as examples of faith in Hebrews 11 have three things in common. They belong to Jesus through faith. They had pain in their lives, and they took the long view. It says this, all of these people died in faith, not having yet received the things that were promised to them, at least not in their lifetimes, but having seen and greeted these things from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for they were seeking a homeland, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Heaven is the only answer to hell on earth. And the only way that anybody can get to heaven is riding on a humble, unassuming donkey with Jesus there. Never on a high horse. Always on a humble donkey. You know, Harvard philosopher Josiah Royce, in his book, The Philosophy of Loyalty, says this, we need a devotion to something more than ourselves for our lives to be endurable. And what, what, what is more than ourselves to which we, we've been called in this, you know, call to devotion? It's right there in verse 16. Apply your heart to know wisdom. And how is wisdom defined? Next verse, verse 17. Wisdom is this, coming to the recognition that I cannot figure out the work of God. You know, Shakespeare put it this way, the, the wise man knows himself to be a fool, and the fool is the one who thinks himself to be wise. Wisdom is understanding that there are invisible realities and invisible mysteries always at play that are completely under the orchestration of the king who rode into town on a donkey, who was cast out of town on a cross. And I'm not allowed to talk about what happened next until next Sunday. Just a hint there. But wisdom says this, if we knew everything that God knows, if we were able to see everything that God sees, it would always be well with our souls. Always. This is the greatest mystery, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things, all things, everything, panta, all things, together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His 
purpose. Maybe the bread on this table in front of me can serve as our closing illustration. This bread, the creation of this bread, took a process, a process that required the mixing of several ingredients, which if we consumed each of them by itself, it would give us a bad experience. If we consumed flour by itself, it would be dry and our, our mouths would, would, would just feel awkward. Try to swallow it and we would choke. And then there are the bitter ingredients that went into the bread, like the salt and the yeast. If we were to consume salt by itself or yeast by itself, we, we, would, we would have a nasty taste in our mouths and we would, we would want to run to water as quickly as we could. And then there are ingredients that by themselves would nauseate us, the raw eggs, the butter. But the final product is delicious. A mother told me not long ago when, when they were first visiting our church that Jesus tastes really good at Christ's prayers. And what the daughter was referring to was how delicious this bread is, which Diane Filson, you want the recipe, you want to help contribute to this? Diane Filson is the one who came up with this recipe. Jesus tastes really good in the bread, in the wine, in the juice. He tastes really good to the tongue, but also to the soul. He tastes really good, even in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, where He prepares a table for us in the presence of enemies. But how did Jesus set the table? What was required of Jesus to set this table with sweet bread and sweet wine? He had to drink bitter vinegar Himself on the cross in order to make this table possible for us. The Lord's Supper is our opportunity to look back on the fact that Jesus submitted Himself to the bitterness and nausea of this world, where the righteous sometimes suffer and where the wicked sometimes prosper. It also invites us to look around and to behold in one another's face as we pass the peace of Christ to each other, the face of Jesus Christ. You know, C.S. Lewis said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object that will ever be presented to your senses. Behold the image of God next to you. This is why we pass the peace of Christ, where we encourage one another, where we talk loudly during the Lord's Supper as a community. Look around, but it also says to look forward, to look ahead, because on the other side of the cross, there's something delicious that awaits the people of God, and something powerful, much more powerful than an emperor riding into town on a, on a horse. There's the feast of the Lord in a better country, the, the, the wedding feast of the land. But we're not there yet. We are at the beginning of Holy Week. We are at the beginning of our path to the cross. So we are called now to allow ourselves to be whisked and baked and taken through the valley of the shadow of death in the next few days. But as we go through the valleys, hopefully we will see that Jesus tastes good there too. Because even darkness, as the Psalms say, is as light to Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, 
the gospel, your gospel, your grace, your truth, your kindness, your severity, your love, your justice. It's all such a mystery to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us all to apply our hearts to wisdom by first and foremost recognizing humbly that we cannot figure out the work of God, and yet we can still trust it because of what you willingly endured, even death on a cross. And so, Father, I pray that you would take these elements now, that you would consecrate them, set them apart, the bread and the cup, that they would be a reminder and nourishment to us even now, that, that, that you are here in a very real, very present way around these tables. Meet us, we pray, at your table, in your supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.